History happened everywhere. A random place, a random time, and a topic pulled from the hat. The challenge? Find the fascinating, uncover the unexpected, and share the stories. You're listening to... History happened everywhere. My name is Peter Goddard. I'm here in the HHE studio with the rabbit to my hat. It's Mr. Ryan Weir. Ooh, Alakazam. Alakazam indeed. Last week, the Dursleater gave us Abracadabra in the Northern Hemisphere. So, Ryan, was it too big to handle? How did you interpret 24 hours? And the only question that matters, do you know how many Francis in the Northern Hemisphere? Well, I can answer that first question, yes. <laughs> we'll come to that very shortly. But yeah, this was a broad one. There was plenty of scope for some pretty interesting stories across an entire half planet. <laughs> um, so it's a bit of a blessing and a curse. What I've got for you today is a broad collection of content. Today we're going to pull from a top hat some legends of the North. We're going to escape from our bonds Ooh. and reveal the trick for vanishing hunger. Uh, we're going to cut in half and put back together an especially sweaty corpse. And if that's not enough, we're going to pull back the curtain and reveal how abracadabra can turn into gold. Wow. So this is the podcast that brings Ryan membership of the magic circle. (laughs) Yeah, that's right. That's what I'm hoping for. (laughs) Okay, should we start? I'm ready. All right. Polar Bears in Paris, Little Bighorn and Mozart, Roman Roads and Eurovision, Otzi the Iceman and Black Forest Gatto, from Cape Canaveral to the Ganges and Kwangju to the Alps. This is a half-planet of Cantonese talking, spaghetti eating, Polaris viewing, pollution spewing, elk hunting, counterclockwise plug hole spinning, hemisphere of land. Welcome to the top of the planet. Hurrah! Welcome to the Northern Hemisphere. So where are we? The Northern Hemisphere. Contrary to the opinion of many a flat earther, planet Earth is in actuality a round object, like a ball called a sphere. Geographers divide Earth's sphere along two imaginary lines around the middle of the planet, from top to bottom, which is known as the prime meridian, and east to west, which is known as the equator. Right, I was just checking you were paying attention. I was there, I was on it. I wouldn't have got the Prime Meridian. <laughs> yeah, I know, right? It's like something from Transformers. I need the Prime Meridian. <laughs> anyway, these lines split the Earth into two sets of two hemispheres, right? So you can have the northern and southern hemispheres, the top and the bottom, or you can have the eastern and western hemispheres, the right and the left of the planet. Today, we're just looking at the top half, the northern hemisphere. So that means looking at everything from the equator all the way to the North Pole at the very tippity-top of the planet. So this means we're going to be covering an area which includes 61% of the planet's total water and 67% of all the land. So the majority, basically, of the planet. That means Europe, Asia, the Middle East, and two-thirds of Africa. We're covering North America, Central America, and the northern part of South America. Wow, I was—I guess I didn't realise. You always think of it as being the middle, I suppose, but clearly it's quite far down. It goes much further down than you think, yeah. It covers 112 countries in total, uh, including three of the world's largest by population. That's China, India, and the USA. 
This is a big area. And just to sort of emphasize that, the Northern Hemisphere has 90% of the world's total human population. Wow. 90%. That's amazing. That's approximately 6.4 billion people. And all those people live in an area of land which is 106.5 million square kilometers, which is approximately (laughs) 196 Frances. That actually surprises. I thought it would be like I went back and checked thousands of them. (laughs) It did not sound like enough. When you think of all of that, it's 196 Francis is all it is. It occurs to me that if we got our act together, we could really attack and overwhelm the southern hemisphere and make it our own. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Just saying, we've got the people, we've got the resources. (laughs) I wasn't expecting declaration of war. (laughs) <laughs> to start. Okay, in terms of climate, the Northern Hemisphere divides into different regions. Everything from the North Pole to what's called the Arctic Circle is very cold, uh, as you might expect. The Arctic Circle south to the Tropic of Cancer is generally temperate. Then you've got the Tropic of Cancer south down to the equator, where everything is just super hot pretty much all the year round. So that's the Northern Hemisphere. Northern Hemisphere facts! Okay, I'm curious to see what you've gone for here. It was tricky, but I dug some stuff out for you, Pete, because I love a fact. (laughs) Yes, you do. Okay, so most early civilizations started in the north. Uh, Homo sapiens, they uh, migrated from the equatorial regions and went north rather than south. Um, October to December, it's the best time to conceive children. If you get what I mean. I see. Waka waka (laughs) wow. Do you know why? warm? (laughs) Yeah, pretty much. Um, So historically, the Northern Hemisphere sees a peak in births of children during June or July, while the Southern Hemisphere sees births happening during October and November. Uh, The result is sort of because of what's called birth seasonality, where humans have evolved to reproduce at a time of the year where basically the local temperature and day length is such that births will be a success. So spring, summer means there's more plants, there's more food, there's more daylight, you've got a better chance of survival if you're born then. But, of course, we're living in more modern times and people are starting to lose that birth seasonality in the Northern Hemisphere. It's called the birth pulse and it tends to be spreading out now throughout the year rather than just in those summer months. And that's likely due to sort of societal changes, artificial light, more time being spent indoors, disconnection with nature, that sort of stuff. Now the peaks are when there's a power cut. Yeah, yeah, I guess so. (laughs) Or if there's a global pandemic. Final fact, it rains more in the Northern Hemisphere. Okay. The Palmyra Atoll, which is just six degrees north of the equator, gets 175 inches of rain a year, while the equal distance south of the equator gets only 45 inches. Do we know what that's related? Because I would have guessed that's because you've got more mountains and land that raises up the clouds so that they discharge their rain, or is it something different to that? Uh, it's a result of it being warmer. And the reason it's warmer, it's because of ocean circulation. So computer models have been run on the Earth's oceans, and it shows basically this huge huge conveyor belt of current, you know, under the oceans, which moves water north over many decades. But as it moves along that belt, the water heats up. And eventually, by the time it gets to the equator, it's carrying 400 trillion watts of power across the equator. And that heated water then turns into rain, and hence why there's more rain in the north. However, if air pollution and global warming continues, as we expect it to, then the ocean circulation might shut down. That conveyor belt might stop, and the rains will shift down south. It's happened like that in the past. During the Industrial Revolution, it happened. But 
This is something that the United Nations is predicting will very likely happen by the year 2100. Oh, my Lord. So in the next 80 years, prepare for more rain down south and more sunny days in the north. Invest in umbrella shop in Australia. (laughs) They said I was mad. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, right. So there is no national anthem for the Northern Hemisphere, despite me eagerly putting into Google what is the national anthem. I figured, look, maybe there's been some sort of competition, right, where the North versus the South, and then, well, what did they play? And I thought maybe I'd find something. Nothing. (laughs) Not a single thing. There is, however, talk of creating a rugby competition between the North and the Southern Hemispheres. Uh, And basically, that's just to sort of find out who's the best half of the planet at rugby. Side note, there is one clue to that already, which is that teams from the north have won only once in the last eight World Cups. Right, yeah. If I was a a betting man, I know which hemisphere I'd be backing despite my war effort. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, so I wondered, if that game went ahead, I thought, well, like, what anthem would they play at the beginning of the game, like, as the teams are coming out? I couldn't find one. I went onto Reddit, I tried asking people, (laughs) I went everywhere and thought, well, I was doing all sorts of searches, and I thought, well, there's only one option (laughs) (laughs) And that is to create one. I was hoping you'd say that. (laughs) So I'm going to create one using each of the representative nations from the next World Cup in 2023. Next Rugby World Cup. Okay, so that's France, Wales, England, Scotland, Ireland, Italy, Georgia, Spain and Japan. And so, Peter, for the first time (laughs) anywhere, (laughs) please enjoy the unofficial sound of the national anthem of the Northern Hemisphere. I like it. It's snappy. It's a little overwhelming. (laughs) This is going to be what you're playing as you march towards the Southern Hemisphere. I do feel like I'm having a breakdown of some kind listening to it. It gets better. It gets better. What I find interesting is that you're standing up with your hand on your chest. (laughs) That is fitting the nine bands on the field that make it really tricky. So there you go. That's the national anthem of the Northern Hemisphere. I mean, I was really hoping you'd written a new tune with lyrics and everything, but uh, that will suffice, I'm sure. Hey, Ryan. Hey, Pete. What's with all the suitcases? Are you moving out? Yeah, 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 yeah. All right, well, where are you going? I'm moving to the Southern Hemisphere. Oh, is that because you told me there's less people there and you want a bit more space? What? No, no, that's not it. No, I like people. Oh, well, do you want to be somewhere that's a bit dry? You know, you said there's less rainfall. No, 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 I like the rain. Oh, well, where are you going then? Well, in my research, I discovered that because of something called the Coriolis effect, when water goes down the plug hole, it swirls in the opposite direction, counterclockwise. Wind, storms, current, everything. It all goes counterclockwise down there. Okay, and? Well, so I figured that if everything goes counterclockwise, well, that probably includes clocks, which means that time must go backwards. So I'm just going to get younger and younger. Ryan, you're an idiot. Of course time doesn't go backwards in the Southern Hemisphere. Oh. No, people down there only look younger because they're all upside down, which means their wrinkles are kind of lifted up. Oh, right. So I'll still look younger then? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Great. All right, well, I'll see you on the flip side. What an idiot. He could have just waited for the clocks to go back.
Okay, so 24 hours. That's the time we were given by the Dursleiter. What does that mean? A day. It does mean a day. That's pretty much generally consistent across the planet. Each country has distinct measurements for distance, for weights, but splitting the day into 24, it seems to be pretty much the only one that is commonly used across everyone. It originates from the ancient Egyptians. They used shadow clocks, which divided daytime into 10 hours, with an additional hour for twilight and another hour for end of daytime. Close down. (laughs) Close down, yeah. (laughs) Yeah, and that division likely originates from, well, let's do a thing. Pete, put your hand out in front of you. And listeners, put your hand out at home in front of you. Palm up, palm down. Palm up, palm palm up up in front of you. Now, using your thumb, I'd like you to count the number of finger joints on your hand. It's one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve. Right, that's where it originates from, being able to use your hand to count to 12. So that was the day. And nighttime was slightly different. It had to be based on the position of the stars because there was no sun to be able to get shadows on your shadow clock. You couldn't see your hand. And you can't see your hand in front of your face, (laughs) indeed. So they chose stars, right? Groups of stars, which they called deacons. And these deacons were chosen specifically so that on any one night, as the sky revolved past, 12 deacons would be visible each after a certain period of time. So during the period of darkness, you would go at 12 deacons that would pass over your head. You'd be like, oh, it's second deacon o'clock. The downside of this being if you're indoors and someone goes, what time is it? And you have to go outside and look up. (laughs) Yeah. Obviously, it wasn't ideal, but that was what the Egyptians used. And they created tables to help determine times by observing these deacons. And some of these tables have been found on the insides of coffin lids so that the dead could also tell the time as well, I guess. I'm right. Sort of an early morning alarm call for your resurrection. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) But this wasn't precise, Peter. We're still not, we're not doing that today, are we? No, we are. Right, so it wasn't precise, and Greek astronomers were sort of struggling to make precise calculations using that method. So Hipparchus created equinoctial hours, which divided the day into 24 equal hours. So in the 14th century, Europeans moved that forward and created mechanical clocks to be able to regulate that time and, and keep things more precise. But today, the standard for time is no longer based on revolutions of the Earth around the sun. Right? Oh, really? No, it's not. Today, we base it on atomic time. And so one second is now officially defined as... (sighs) (laughs) Physics incoming. (laughs) 9,192,631,770 periods of the radiation corresponding to the transition between the two hyperfine levels of the ground state of the Cassium-133 atom. That's one second. Right. Oh, and here's me without my atom. (laughs) I have no idea what the time is. <laughs> so if that's one second, what would 24 hours be? 10 gajillion, five, <laughs> five merillion. That's a good guess. <laughs> I can tell you've been working on your math. It's actually 794 trillion, 243 billion, 380 million periods of the radiation corresponding to the transition between the two hyperfine levels of the ground state of the Cassium-133 atom. That was going to be my second guess. You'd have been right. <laughs> Should have said that first. I know, I regret everything. <laughs> so that's time. Time to move on with the podcast. Hey, Tahatep, where have you been? 
I've been on my lunch, why? Well, well, well what time do you call this? Third knuckle, third finger, why? Well, but you've been gone for hours, easily a whole finger. What? No, I left at third finger, first joint. No, 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 no. It was at least second finger, third joint when you left, and it's third finger, third joint now. Well, look at the shadow dial. What does that say? It says, um, it, it says, well, it's cloudy. Oh, well, there you go. Look, oh, it, you know you are contracted to do at least three fingers a day, right? And your lunch break is only half a digit. Yeah, look, all right, look, how about I stay for half a pinky this twilight and you give me a couple of deacons overtime this weekend? All right, fine. But look, I don't want you just watching the sky all shift, all right? There's plenty of people who would love to be in on this pyramid scheme. All right, all right. Not a slave, you know. Abracadabra! Alakazam. Yes, but more abracadabra. <laughs> uh, today, it's something a magician might say before pulling a rabbit out of a hat. Uh, which reminds me, I have something for you. Oh, rabbit stew. <laughs> right, Peter. He's put it out in a big box. Yeah, this box is for you. Oh, it's an exciting box. It looks like the box at the end of the movie Seven. Yes. <laughs> it's your wife's head. Oh, dear. Can you please reveal to us what is inside the box? <laughs> right, we have in here the epitome of abracadabra, I would say. Yep. A top hat, some white silk-esque gloves-esque. <laughs> and a magic wand That's with a little classic right. black stick with two little white bits at each end. Right, so please feel free to don your magic magician outfit. <laughs> Just put me gloves on. You're going to need all of this. I feel like I could both conjure a rodent from a headgear, but also read an antique book with these white gloves. <laughs> <laughs> I don't, they're on, they're on. I'm now magic wizarded wow, up. Wow, you look amazing and awesome, and I need to take a picture. <laughs> okay, that's way better than I thought it would be. <laughs> okay, so, abracadabra. Um, oh, I uh, have to pop the hat down for... Oh, I see. It's a very tall stovepipe in yeah, time yeah. for fear, isn't it? Yeah, well, you've got to hide a rabbit in there or something. <laughs> keep, keep that handy. I will, yes. Um, right, let's try that magic wand. Give it a swirl. <gasps> I love it! Wow! That was, that was very unexpected. <laughs> do you want to try it again? I do. Okay. Awesome. <laughs> I mean, when you said magic, it looks on the face of it to be a piece of cheap plastic, but it turns out to have a tremendous power. Who knew? I love it. <laughs> Good. Right, but where did the magical word abracadabra come from? Well, there are several possibilities. It might come from the word abraxas. Uh, it's an ancient Greek word considered magical because the letters in Greek numerology add up to 365, which is obviously the days in the year. Uh, it might also be from the Hebrew phrase ab, ben, and ruach hakodesh. Any idea what that might mean? It means um, from the son of Rukhodesh. Very close. That's amazing. <laughs> uh, it means father, son, and Holy Spirit. Ah, oh, so good. Referencing, obviously, the Holy Trinity. Or it could be from the Aramaic phrase, Avra Kadavra. I prefer that one. Sounds very close to say. <laughs> Which means, as I speak, so I create. Which alludes to the creation, where God spoke and the universe came into being. So you're telling me... The ultimate magic trick. God said abracadabra, and then all this <laughs> and kicked everything, off. Everything. <laughs> that was a whole new spin on the opening of Genesis, doesn't it? <laughs> yeah. Shortly after he pulled a rabbit from that. <laughs> Ta-da! And for my next trick... <laughs> Pain and misery and death. <laughs> I call this next one Original Sin. <laughs> 
But there is no real evidence of any of those being the actual origin. The first recorded use of abracadabra was from the 2nd century, so quite a few years back, when a Roman named Serenus Simonicus wrote a book about curing deadly illnesses. He said, and I quote, On a piece of parchment, write the so-called abracadabra several times, repeating it on the line below, but take off the end so that gradually individual letters, which you will take away each time, are missing from the word. Continue until the last letter makes the apex of a comb. Remember to wind this with linen and hang it around the neck. Does that make sense? So you take the word abracadabra, you take the last letter off, on the next line, you take the next letter off, all the oh, way down like until you just end up with A at the bottom. Gotcha. Yeah, an upside down pyramid. And you wear it just around your neck, like a charm or like a magical spell to help cure you of your ills. But just to hedge his bets, Serenus then writes, many people say that the lard of a lion is also effective. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, good job I've got a big jar of lion lard lion back in the larder. <laughs> Everyone has lion lard. <laughs> well, I have a theory. Okay. I have a theory that it was in the Regency period mm -hmm. and a scoundrel was seeing somebody's wife mm. and he had been caught almost in flagrante but not quite and he'd managed to hide the wife and mm -hmm. he'd found her undergarments and put them in his hat to conceal them oh. so that uh, the husband, the angry husband, wouldn't find him out. And the angry husband comes in and he says, you've been seeing my wife? And he says, no, I haven't. Uh, I'm absolutely innocent. But then he strikes the hat from his head and he pulls out the underwear and he says, a bra, Cad, a bra. I'm interested. Did you make that up just off the top of your head? Yes. <laughs> or did you come pre-planned? I did not come pre-planned. That. <laughs> that was entirely spontaneous. It's actually very good. <laughs> if you, I thought you were going down the line of cutting her up in a box. I was trying to sort of work that in, but my brain wasn't working that, that uh, effectively, unfortunately. Well, anyway, maybe he should cover her in lion lard. <laughs> <laughs> Quick into the lion lard. <laughs> anyway, so we know that people did wear these talismans with the word abracadabra you know, ins inside them. And they did it for a long time. In the 1500s, historian Eva Rimmington Taylor... Mm. Sounds like quite a modern name, doesn't it? She'd solve mysteries. <laughs> yeah, what well, kind of. She wrote a book called The Troublesome Voyage of Captain Edward Fenton. <laughs> <laughs> in which she claimed, Bannister saith he healed 200 in one year of an ague by hanging abracadabra about their necks. I will. Can't guarantee that's how she actually spoke. <laughs> I really hope she does. Um, yeah, well, it will pick, clear up an ague. Who knew? Clear up 200. How's your ague coming on? Yeah, that's fine. <laughs> that's all good. Thanks for the cream. <laughs> in fact, abracadabra was still being used as a, in quotes, cure well into the 18th century. Isn't that amazing? Robinson Crusoe author, Daniel Defoe, uh, he wrote in 1722 about the plague, saying that, in, again, in his own words, People deceive it, and this was in wearing charms, filters, exorcisms, amulets, and I know not what preparations to fortify the body with them against the plague, as if the plague was but a kind of a possession of an evil spirit and that it was to be kept off with crossings, signs of the zodiac, papers tied up with so many knots and certain words or figures written on them, as particularly the word abracadabra, formed in triangle or pyramid. Oh, how the poor people found the insufficiency of those things, and how many of them were afterwards 
carried away in the dead carts. Well, he knew what was up, at least. In the dead carts. That's well, how you want to end up, is it, in a dead cart? Yeah, how was the doctor's? Well, he's prescribed me this. What is it? It's the word Amprograbla written on a post-it note. <laughs> and that's going to work, is it? No. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, by the 19th century, though, there's a greater understanding of sort of working medicine and the act of hanging an abracadabra charm around your neck pretty much just vanishes. Uh, instead, the word takes on a more mystical, symbolic meaning and is adopted by showmen as a means of adding drama to stage illusions. Other magical words you might be aware of? Alakazam! <laughs> Hocus Pocus! Oh, nice. Um, hey Presto! Hey Presto! Shazam! Bibbidi Bobbidi Boo! <laughs> That's another one. And my personal favourite... Traguna! McCoydes! Tricorum Satisti! Bedknobs and broomsticks. Uh, <laughs> the jolly jaunt through Satanism. <laughs> Good old Disney. <laughs> anyway, there you go. All right, let's go back in time. If you wouldn't mind, will you please twizzle your wand and say the magic word? Abracadabra. <laughs> Welcome, Pete, to the mid-14th century. Oh, one of my favourite mid-centuries. That's what I thought. So Europe is literally plagued by the plague. <laughs> <laughs> it is uh, a deadly, contagious disease known as the pestilence or Black Death. It's the most fatal pandemic in human history, with the deaths of an estimated 200 million people. That's 60% of the entire population in a period of just seven years. Time to be in the death cart business. Yeah, or you could be one of those guys saying, well, I don't believe in the plague. But there is also another epidemic which took many lives, but kind of is a little bit less well known. So beginning in 1485, the English sweating sickness, or the sweat, was a disease which became famous for victims dying of it within 24 hours. Ah. Uh, by sweating to death. That sounds awful. Pretty grim, yeah. So, a book of British history called Hollinshed's Chronicles, published in 1557, described the English sweating sickness as so sharp and deadly that the like was never heard of to any man's remembrance before that time. Wow. Pretty bad, which is quite a statement given that this was written by someone whose grandfather certainly saw the Black Death. Doctors at the time really struggled, as you might expect, to understand how to treat the disease, let alone understand it, and all they could do really was describe the symptoms, uh, the effects of the disease. And so Pete, imagine if you will, contracting the sweats. You begin with an abrupt fever. That's followed by extreme aches in the neck, shoulders and extremities. Then you get abdominal pain with vomiting. You get intense chills, then a hot phase involving profuse sweating. You have profound weakness and agonizing shortness of breath, then chest pain, rapid pulse, cardiac palpitations, and then finally death. Oh my Lord. All within 24 hours. 
It's not good news, is it, when the doctor's, you ask the doctor, how long have I got? And he says, well, what time is it now? <laughs> <laughs> so modern researchers think that the first outbreak may actually be directly tied to Henry Tudor and his coup against Richard III in 1485. So uh, the, the illness was first reported at the Battle of Bosworth, but followed Henry's men back to London. So within six weeks of their arrival in the capital, the sweats had killed 15,000 people. Jeepers. Right? And it continued to claim victims, especially during the summer months. The epidemic was mostly contained in England until 1528, when the sweat then travelled via ship to Hamburg in Germany, where it killed over a thousand people within a month. Then 3,000 people died in Danzig, then in Lübeck and other cities as it spread all the way along the Baltic coast into Denmark, Scandinavia and finally into Russia. In 1551 though, as if by magic, abracadabra, the sweat just vanished. Wow. And it's not been seen since. So they do say, don't they, that one of the weaknesses of a disease is to kill its host too quickly because then it doesn't get the opportunity to spread. So I can imagine that might have been something to do with it. Entirely possible, yeah. We know that it likely didn't originate in England. It, England is, seems to be like the, the hotspot, the epicentre of it, but doesn't seem to originate from there. When Henry Tudor was starting his fight against Richard, he hired mercenaries who were fighting in a campaign against the Ottoman Empire uh, in 1480. They then transported to France to help in the fight and they think that perhaps it was that combination of right. bringing spreading it across across europe in recent years medical researchers at the queen astrid military hospital in brussels have been studying the disease and they've identified two possible suspects one of which we know so it may have been a form of hantavirus do you remember hantavirus? I don't remember hantavirus. We covered this in episode Zoology in Chile, where humans become infected by inhaling airborne particles of rodent urine or feces. Oh, yes, The most did. deadly animal in Chile was the rat. So the symptoms of the sweat are similar to hantavirus. The United States has an average of 48 cases of hantavirus every year. It has a 38% mortality rate today. And the reason it's high is because no treatment exists, aside from sort of putting somebody on ventilation. The problem with hantavirus, though is that only the deadliest variety of hantavirus is from the Americas, not from Europe. And the first outbreak took place seven years before the Americas were even discovered in 1492. Do we have another candidate? We do indeed. Anthrax. Could be that. Basically, it's caused by a, a bacterium, Bacillus anthracis. Symptoms of inhaling anthrax include copious sweating, exhaustion, and sudden onset and death. So it could well be anthrax. Even with treatment, mortality rate is 45%. It's common among animals. The bacterial spore needs to enter the body by inhalation, so breathing it in or ingesting it by eating something with it on, or indeed getting it in open wounds. So as soldiers, it's entirely possible that was the case. Certainly soldiers that would be familiar with animals for cooking and for wool and all that sort of stuff. In fact, it's possible that anthrax spores might have been in wool that they slept on or they wore, although some argue that actually wool had been kind of industrialised by that point. So it was unlikely that it would have been that raw that you would have got anthrax spores on it by that point, the time that you were wearing it. And so the mystery continues with just one important question to consider, Pete. Could the sweat come back? The possibility is there. Do 
So, Pete, we talked about the planet Earth. We said it was a sphere which revolves around the sun. Do you remember that? I do remember that. Okay. Now, as it rotates, the Earth tilts at an angle. Because of that tilt, the side of the Earth, which is pointed away from the sun, that receives less direct sunlight and so therefore is less warm. We call this winter. The closer you get to the pole, the more extreme that angle is between you and the sun. And eventually, when you get very close to the poles, the angle is so extreme that some parts of the year, the sun never fully rises or sets. This means that during the winter, as if by magic, abracadabra, the sun disappears completely and plunges the Arctic Circle into complete darkness for 24 hours of every day. This eternal darkness can last from anything from 30 days to almost two months in some places. So now I would ask you, Pete, and listeners as well, close your eyes. Imagine yourself standing on a frozen lake just north of the Arctic Circle. In front of you is a vast and flat expanse of snow-covered ice and forest. Above you, an ink-black sky covered with stars. Suddenly... Somewhere in the sky, abracadabra, a smudge of light begins to materialize, a shimmering green veil of light which dances in front of you across the darkness of space. This is the Northern Lights, the Aurora Borealis. Okay, you can open your eyes. Nice. So, the aurora is described by almost everyone who sees it as a truly magical experience. But of course it isn't magic. Uh, We know today, scientists have known for a while now, that the northern lights are caused by the interaction of particles from the sun, which hit the Earth's atmosphere and react. But we haven't always known that. That's a fairly recent discovery. So, what did our ancestors think as they stood there, just as you have done? What would they think it was? Well, not surprisingly, the aurora borealis features prominently in the mythology and legends of people across the Northern Hemisphere. The name itself, Aurora Borealis, is Greek for sunrise wind. Very poetic. Uh, In fact, in Greek myth, Aurora was the sister of Helios and Selene, the sun and the moon. And it was said that Aurora raced across the sky in a multicoloured chariot to alert them of the dawning of a new day. Which Every is, day. Guys, guys! Every day. You're never going to believe this. <laughs> yeah, we get it. <laughs> we get it, Aurora. Uh, but it's interesting because how did the Greeks know about the Northern Lights, right? They weren't anywhere near the Arctic Circle, so how could they possibly have have seen it. Well, it turns out it comes from a time when there was such incredible solar activity, the sun was really active during this period, that the lights could actually be seen as far south as the Mediterranean. Wow. Where even the Romans saw them as well, and they associated the lights with a new day as well, taking essentially the Greek thing, calling theirs Aurora as well, and making her goddess of dawn. Classic Roman stuff. They're <laughs> yeah. lifting your Greek mythology every time, aren't they? We'll take this away. <laughs> this is an our art. <laughs> No guarantee that's how they spoke. (laughs) (laughs) Further north, however, people lived in areas which were much less concentrated than like Greece or Rome or the Mediterranean. So communities were smaller and more remote from each other. And so a number of different myths sprung up about the Northern Lights. So here's some of the legends. 
Some Inuit tribes considered the aurora to be the spirits of dead humans playing a ball game using a walrus skull as the ball. As one would. I don't quite know how that translates <laughs> between green shimmering lights to dead humans playing a ball game using a walrus skull. Floodlights. <laughs> <laughs> oh, there is an exception to that. The people on Nunavik Island told the same story, but the other way around. So for them, the Northern Lights were walrus spirits playing ball <laughs> with the skull of some unfortunate human. That is an absolute cracking case of miscommunication somewhere down the line, isn't it? And I heard. <laughs> or was it the other way around? It doesn't matter. <laughs> it doesn't matter. It's, it's one of those. Yeah. The market Indians in today's Washington state thought that the lights were fires in the north, created by a tribe of dwarves who used it to boil whale blubber. Why not, right? Right. Uh, the Mandan people in North Dakota, they considered the lights to be fires, but this one was for great warriors who were boiling their enemies in huge cooking pots. All these stories tend to go just a bit weird towards the end, don't they? (laughs) Icelandic ancestors, they associated the lights with childbirth. They said that they could relieve the pain of delivery if the mother didn't look at the aurora. So don't look at the aurora and it'll be less painful. Whilst giving birth, looking at the aurora could also make your child born cross-eyed. Oh, you don't want that, do you? No. Just makes me feel like it happened once, right? <laughs> Someone was like, like, oh, look oh, at the aurora. Yeah. And they were like, yeah, it's beautiful. And then she gave birth she to like a cross-eyed baby. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. In Greenland, the lights were linked to giving birth too, but they were judged to be the souls of stillborn babies or babies killed at birth. Oh, that's sad. Yeah. In Finland, it was said that the lights were caused by a fire fox, which could run so quickly that his tail caused sparks to fly into the night sky. Oh, well, that's my favourite so far. It's good, right? Alternatively, they also thought that the lights were created from the spume of water ejected from whales. Oh, nice. Got to finish. They seem like a more poetic people than the walrus. Although I do admire the walruses playing football with a man's skull concept. Yeah. In Sweden, the aurora is seen as a sign of good news. Um, the lights being a gift from benevolent gods who are providing warmth and light in the form of a volcano somewhere in the distant north. Nice. Yeah, also a beautiful one. Elsewhere in Sweden, they believe that the lights were the reflection of a, a large skull of herring. Uh, which bode well for local fishermen. Basically, if you saw those, you were going to get a big catch. Someone was hungry when they saw the lights. (laughs) What did herring? (laughs) And more romantically, the Estonian, they believed the lights were magnificent horse-drawn carriages carrying heavenly guests to a spectacular celestial wedding. To which you're not invited. Yeah, well, yeah. Yeah, there is that. And then finally, of course, where would we be without the Vikings? And uh, the Northern Lights feature prominently in Norse mythology. One legend suggests that the lights were reflections or glow from the shields and armor of the Valkyrie, uh, female warriors who would choose who may die in battle and who may live to fight another day. Warriors who did die in battle would find themselves traveling the Bifrost Bridge, a glowing and pulsating arch which led to their final resting place in Valhalla. Hurrah! Abracadabra, the <laughs> Northern Lights. Nice. Oh, wise man. Yes, my child. There are green lights in the sky. The village is much afraid. Ah, be not scared. It is perfectly normal. It's part of nature. But, but, but what is it? Well, when charged particles from the sun strike atoms in the Earth's atmosphere, they cause electrons in the atoms to move to a higher energy state. When the electrons drop back to a lower energy state, they release a photon, which is light. The process creates the beautiful lights we see in the sky. Oh. 
Yeah, I don't get it. Well, it's like the sun burping out tiny dust into the air. This dust mixes with the sky and they glow. Oh. Yeah, no, I'm still not with you. Okay, well, uh, the big fireball shoots arrows, which makes sparks in the air. Oh, so it's a battle. No. It's a hunt? Well... What's it hunting? It's, uh... Um, Is it hunting a walrus? Oh. Is it a green walrus? What? A giant ball of fire hunting a giant green walrus in the stars? Wow! Who would have thought? Yes. Who would have thought it? Oh, wise man. You are so wise. Yes. Yes, I am. Okay, so, Peter... I imagine you're a little hungry, right? You've been I'm sitting here. Starving. I've wow. been thinking of herring. <laughs> <laughs> it just tipped you over the edge, didn't it? <laughs> well, how about I conjure us up some food? In the next 24 hours? <laughs> <laughs> Does that sound good? Sounds excellent. Okay, so, Peter, I need you to shake that magic wand three times and say the magic word Abracadabra. It's not working. Oh, it's What's broken. Was it? Did it need recharge? All right. Well, let's try it one more time. All right. You twirl it, and I'll say the magic word. Okay. You ready? Getting <laughs> <Okay>, flashbacks. <laughs> you ready? Yeah. I'm okay. twirling. Abra kebabra. <laughs> <laughs> now that is the magic word. <laughs> and where are we, Pete? Well, we've magically we've appeared materialized in not just a kebab shop, but a, a kebab shop named Abra Kebabra. But I noticed uh, from the sign on the wall, it features in the gallery of the best kebab shops in South London. Just saying, that is only the best places. Only the best places materialize us in top quality kebab land. Now that's magic. <laughs> so, okay, so we've ordered some chicken sheesh kebabs right so we're gonna we're while we're waiting for our food to materialize in front of us as we sit here i thought i'd tell you a little bit about kebabs why not okay so today the word kebab or kebab in uh, the united states uh, is generally understood to mean a food which has like small chunks of meat cooked on a skewer right either uh, vertically like the uh, giros the doner kebab um, which is cooked on a, like a vertical spit around heat, or sheesh, which is skewered chunks on meat, lay, which is then laid on a grill, horizontally on a grill. So uh, kebabs are incredibly popular. The UK has 17,000 kebab shops. It's the fourth most popular fast food. I love a kebab, so yeah. I support that 100%. You are part of that... 2.8 billion revenue that's generated every year. It's a lot of kebabs. <laughs> uh, in the West, we consider kebabs to have been introduced from Turkey around the 17th century, but the history of the kebab has much more ancient origins than that. Right? So the 4,000-year-old Babylonian word, kebaba, meant burned, which is sort of what we think is probably one of the, the earliest references to it. But actually, if you go further back, the earliest known prehistoric Proto-Afro-Asian language used the word cab as a word to mean burn or roast. So it might go as far back as, well, yes please, everything please, yes, load it up, that'd be great, thanks. There have been excavations uh, on um, the Greek island of Santorini, uh, which has unearthed 
stone supports which they believe were used for skewers, which and that was around about 3,000 years ago. The Greek poem, the Iliad, mentions pieces of meat roasted on spits. The Mahabharata, an ancient Indian text, mentions large pieces of meat roasted on spits. And Ibn Battuta. Hey, we love him. Your, your favourite, the Moroccan traveller. Uh, we've talked about him before on several episodes. And he described seeing kebab served in the royal houses in India in the 14th century. Long and proud tradition that I'm continuing to this day. You are indeed, yeah. It's thought that the method of cooking small chunks of meat on skewers originates from a more practical need. And so it uses less food and it uses less fuel. You don't need as much. And so like Europe, for example, is full of forests and full of animals that you can could create large cuts of meat on big bonfires and yeah so you normally think of like a whole pig on a thing going over a fire when you think medieval that's exactly Europe. right yeah yeah and whereas you didn't have that luxury when you're in the middle of a desert somewhere so you just create a small fire with small cuts of meat and cook it over that small space but what we know is that the kebab has been adopted and integrated with sort of local cooking for millennia right pretty much across the world and all the way to today where we you know eat it just as a snack really as a sort of a fast food meal traditionally the meat is most commonly mutton or lamb but beef goat chicken fish sometimes pork also used to create uh, you know like about but chicken is the most common, and that's what we're going to be having in a second. It is the cheaper, and some would argue the more tastier. Love a chicken. Not below. It works like a chicken. Exactly. So one of the more important parts of making a kebab is marination. It creates flavor, and it prevents the chicken from roasting too long, and it prevents it from becoming dry. So it's really important with a kebab that you marinate that chicken. So proper marination technique for you here, Pete. Don't use frozen chicken, ever, okay? Even when it's defrosted, it may not be juicy. Make pieces which are large enough, about four to five centimeters each, but not huge. Otherwise, the chicken might not cook on the inside, right? Now, you're gonna to wanna to get a bowl that is ceramic or glass or enamel. Don't use wood, don't use aluminium. You create a mixture of lemon juice, olive oil, milk or yogurt, onion juice, Right, yeah. I've juiced an onion before. <laughs> Cinnamon, marjoram, tomato, tomato juice, sorry, and spices. You're making me hungry. Mate, my mouth is just, <laughs> just sitting here watching our food being cooked is making me hungry, yeah. You add salt, but don't put that in until half an hour before cooking the kebab. Ah. Yeah, otherwise it will pull the liquid from the chicken and make it more dry. So you add that pretty much as a last resort. Now, the meat is marinated, and the longer that it marinates, the better, the more juicier, tastier, and more fragrant the, the flavors are gonna be, which is why the best duration for marination is? 24 hours. 24 hours. Spray and the Diet Coke, please. Thanks, man. Thank you. You're welcome. All right, so let's eat some shish kebab. Let's do it, looking forward to this. Yeah, I really am. <laughs> oh, me too. I'm starving. Okay, Peter, we have finished our delicious meal. We have. What's your immediate thoughts? That was a delicious meal. Well worth 24 hours of marination. All right, should we uh, head back to the studio then? I think we ought to. Okay, do you want to tell your, your want? Ah, <laughs> uh, yes. Oh. <sighs>
Here we are back in the studio. This back wonder is terrific. Studio. Yeah, that's that great. It's going to cut hours from my commuting time. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> hey, um, I just had a thought. Go on. Did you pay that guy? Oh. It, I mean, it'd be fine, wouldn't it? I figure I'll wave the wand and something will appear in his till. <gasps> Hey, well done. Sorted. Magic is great. I love magic. (laughs) It's changed my life. (laughs) So, unless performing at child's party, modern illusionists don't tend to use magic words. That's true. Abracadabra is not in the professional lexicon. In fact, magic has changed a great deal in more recent years. There is a focus now on stunts and tricks. They sort of showcase escapology events, drawing, you know, huge crowds to come and see somebody do something slightly dangerous whilst chained up. You'll be thinking of David Blaine, I'm sure. I absolutely was thinking of David Copperfield or or one of those. Yeah, those are the illusionists that, that we sort of look at today, the Harry Houdinis of our age. So it's exactly those kind of illusions, seemingly impossible, dangerous situations that these guys like to be trapped inside and find their way out. We like to live vicariously through these people and witness the magic of somebody escaping a uh, death-defying event, being buried alive or trapped in a tank of water, that sort of stuff. So here's three modern illusionists, stroke escapologists, from the Northern Hemisphere. Okay. Let's start with Zdenek Bradak. Not heard of him, I'm sure. No, sir. Born in Czechoslovakia in 1987, Zdenek is recognised mostly for breaking world records for escapes. He holds records for, in 2009, the fastest time to escape three handcuffs underwater. Wow. How long do you think it would take you to escape three handcuffs underwater? I think I need till next Tuesday at the very least, (laughs) with the right equipment. (laughs) Well, he managed it in 38.69 seconds. Wow. Pretty fast. In 2011, the most handcuffs unlocked in one minute. Any idea? Six. It's seven. Yeah, that's a good guess, though. And he also holds the record for the fastest handcuff escape. 1.66 seconds. So do you think he commits crimes and the police are like, oh, it's this guy. Oh, it's Stenek. Just go home, mate. <laughs> go home, Stenek, you're drunk. <laughs> he put his hands in concrete. Not break out that one. Uh, he is also the record holder for the most handcuff escapes in 24 hours. Ah, yeah. Hence why he is being featured in my list. Uh, he achieved this in 2010 uh, when he managed to escape from how many handcuffs do you think in 24 hours? So what would he do? What, he was covered in handcuffs and he had to undo them or <laughs> he would be handcuffed and then he'd get out and then they'd handcuff him again? I, I don't know, but I suspect they were just placed in front of him and he had to undo them. Okay. Um, six, six times... 400. It was more than that. It was 10,625 handcuffs in 24 hours. Wow. Yeah, he averaged 442 escapes every hour. Do we know the brand of these handcuffs, just for future reference? (laughs) John's handcuffs are watching. Oh, no, this is not good for business. Uh, Now, this one you may well have heard of, Chris Angel. I've heard of Chris Angel. Okay, well, Chris Angel is a uh, New York illusionist. He is inspired, he says, by the legendary work of Harry Houdini. And uh, he did one where he submerged himself in a tank of water for 24 hours. 
Wow. So he stayed inside the water tank, which was the size of a phone box, uh, with his arms and legs chained to his waist and neck. He used a breathing regulator and a mask for the entire time that he was underwater. I'm glad you added that. Except, <laughs> except for the final few minutes, where they whipped the mask and the regulator out, and he had to hold his breath and escape his chains and the box. Over the 24 hours, he didn't eat and he didn't sleep, uh, which was impressive, given that he also didn't eat any food for three days before the stunt. How pruney were his fingers and toes when he got out? Just how hangry he must have been. <laughs> really grumpy. Why am I doing this? This is a terrible <laughs> idea. Yeah, and in 2007, he was back at it again. This time, he sat in a four-foot, that's you know, one-meter square box, before being slowly encased in cement. That is giving me anxiety. <laughs> Claustrophobic, right? <laughs> then he was suspended 40 feet above the ground for 24 hours before escaping in the final few minutes just before the box was dropped to the floor below. Yeah, no, I don't like that. <laughs> you know, like sitting in a stressed position oh, for 24 hours. In a concrete. Oh, no, that's really giving me the horrors. <laughs> okay, well, then let me tell you about our final illusionist, and that is Jaduga Mandrake. Jaduga Mandrake, or Wizard Mandrake, was born in India as Chanchal Lahiri. Also inspired by Harry Houdini, Jaduga Mandrake was a lifelong illusionist. In 2019, his family and friends gathered on the side of the banks of the River Ganges. He was manacled, suspended by a crane upside down over the river. The crane lowered him down into the water and he was submerged. A metal hook released the cable that, that held him and he dropped into the current. Time passed, people waited, and he failed to emerge. 24 hours later, rescue workers discovered his body. Oh, no. And that's why, Ryan, I'm not being encased in anything. Before he entered the river, he said it would be magic if he freed himself and tragic if he didn't. So I think we can safely say... <laughs> falls under the <laughs> tragic <laughs> category. Well, this is why I'm more of a pick a card, any card kind of a magician, Ryan. Yeah? Yeah, you don't die of... Is this your card? No. Okay. I'm not dead. It's fine. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, Peter, we're going to close out our 24-hour magical Northern Hemisphere adventure with a song! Nice! Right, it's 1966. We're in San Francisco, California. Oh, yeah. A band is created. They go on to have a string of hit singles throughout the mid to late 1970s. And in 1982, they release their 12th studio album. It goes platinum in the USA. It sells one million copies. The album releases four singles. Cool magic. Keeps me wondering why. Give it up. And a song named after the title album, Abracadabra. <laughs> That's right, Abracadabra, song by the Steve Miller Band. Written entirely by Steve Miller, the lyrics were conceived and written within 24 hours. Oh, nice. Mm. Yeah, Steve Miller explained, One day I was out skiing in Sun Valley, <laughs> and lo and behold, who did I see on the mountain but Diana Ross? I had played with Diana Ross and the Supremes on Hullabaloo in the 60s. And after I came in from skiing, I thought, man, how would the Supremes do this song? So I wrote Abracadabra. I just started thinking about the Supremes and I went, gonna reach out and grab ya. And I just wrote the lyrics in 12 minutes. 12 minutes. 12 minutes. Abracadabra and reach out and grab ya, though, is pretty good. 
Anyway, the song went on to number one all over the world. It spent 14 weeks in the top 10 of the Hot 100 chart. The video that they made, it was uh, created at a time where MTV was just starting and it won MTV Award for Best Effects and uh, nominated for Best Director. And it is currently listed at number 90 on Billboard's Greatest Songs of All Time. And that's it. There you go. That was terrific. I think you've done rather well there. You've brought, everything had 24 hours. Everything had a magical abracadabric quality to it. You brought it home beautifully, I'd say. Abracadabra. So thank you again, Ryan. That was an excellent episode. Thoroughly enjoyable. A romp around the Northern Hemisphere across a broad range of topics. Loved it. Great. I'm really glad you enjoyed it. But now it's time, of course, to prepare for the next episode. The next episode. Okay. Wheel out the doors later. All right. Let's crank it open. Get it started. Crank the crank and do whatever you do to a gear. Okay. Right. And the country is... Okay, so this is an odd one. The country is the 50th country in Europe, alphabetically. Okay. The United Kingdom. Okay, I, I guess, yeah, that's... Okay, should, right, we do right. the, uh, should we do the time then? Do the time, okay. go for it. And the time is... The 50s. The, fif- the 50s? Yeah, yeah, the 50s, yeah. That's quite coincidental, so... Why, why is it coincidental? Well, we've got 50s and 50s. Oh, what, 50th country? In yeah. Europe? Oh, yeah, that is strange, isn't it? We're, we're, let's see okay. what this last thing is. All right, is, and the topic then. Your topic is... 50. Okay, Ryan, have you been fiddling with the doors later? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I gave it a little tweak this week. So what's happened here? Okay, well, our next episode is episode 50. Oh, of course. Right, so this is in celebration of the fact that we've hit our half centenary. Is that the right word? A demi <laughs> Anyway, That'll we've hit the first task is to look that up <laughs> next time. So for our 50th episode, I thought we would do something different. And so I've selected for you 50 in the 50s in the 50th country in Europe alphabetically. Which Otherwise, is the that was Kingdom. the luckiest Dursleater role ever uh, conceived. <laughs> <laughs> I thought maybe you'd just like not notice. <laughs> I very much noticed, but that's exciting. Yeah. So 50th episode, have to do something special, I think. I think so. All right, I'll get it done. Okay, that's our show for this week. Thank you, as ever, for listening. And if you'd like to get in touch about any of the things we've talked about, many and varied as they were, uh, or if you just want to say hello, you can reach out through the website, hhepodcast.com, or email Pete and Ryan at hhepodcast.com. We love hearing from you. And you never know, if you get in touch, you might end up featured on a future show. And if you're desperate for that, one way to definitely make it happen is rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts. The reason we ask you to do this is these recommendations help push us out to a wider audience, and we love to have more listeners on board. And if you are on TikTok, Instagram, Facebook, or Twitter, any of the social media, you can find us at HHE Podcast. And if you subscribe to those, you're going to get an alert every single time we post one of our little one-minute animated bites. We will, of course, be back again soon with The Verdict. But until then, a huge thank you to you, Ryan. And thank you to you, Peter. And that's it. I guess all that's left to say is... You've been listening to... History happened everywhere.
Hey Pete. Hey Ryan. Can you put these handcuffs on? Yeah, sure. Are we doing a trick or something? Sure. Sort of. Okay. Okay, can you step in this box? Yeah, yeah, no problem. And just lie down? Okay. Alright, I'm just going to lower you into this hole. Okay, here we go. And now I'm going to cover you in soil. Oh, sounds good. Trick. Is there a key or something? Ryan? Ryan! Ryan, you can dig me up now! I can't, I can't get out, Ryan! This isn't a very good trick! Alakadabra! Abracadabra! Hey, open sesame! Ryan! I don't think he's coming. I hate you, Ryan. This is a terrible trick. You're going to dig me up? Ryan! No one knows I'm here. It's really dark, Ryan. I'm so hungry. I've got research to do, Ryan. I'm scared. <laughs> Oh dear. Well done, Ryan. Pulled the rabbit from the hat.